In this sermon on Esther 5, we look at the task that Esther faced to rescue and deliver her people, the Jews, from certain death and annihilation. So let me go ahead this morning, I'm going to read for us chapter 5, and you can follow along with the Bible if you want, but here it is. It says, on the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace just across from the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne, facing the entrance, and when he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her and held out the gold scepter to her. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. Then the king asked her, What do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half of the kingdom. And Esther replied, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come, to a, come today to a banquet that I have prepared for the king. And the king turned to his attendants and said, Tell Haman to come quickly to a banquet as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet, and while they were drinking wine, the king said to Esther, Esther, now tell me what you really want. What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half of the kingdom. Esther replied, this is my request, this is my deepest wish. If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request and to do what I ask, Please come with Haman tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for you. And then I will explain what this is all about. Haman was a happy man as he left that banquet. But when he saw Mordecai sitting at the palace gate, not standing up or trembling nervously before him, Haman became furious. However, he restrained himself and went on home. Then Haman gathered together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, and, and boasted to them about his great wealth and his many children. He bragged about the honors the king had given him and how he had been promoted over all the other nobles and the other officials. And then Haman added, and that's not all. Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to a banquet she prepared for us, and she has invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow. Then he added, but this is all worth nothing. As long as I see Mordecai the Jew just sitting there at the palace gate. So Haman's wife, Zeresh, and all his friends suggested, set up a sharpened pole that stands 70 feet, 75 feet high. And in the morning, ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. And when this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king. And this pleased Haman, and he ordered that the pole be set up. Dun, dun, dun! Let me share with you... I was reading this week from a guy named Jeremy Myers, and he had this to say about is it me. Okay, I hear a squeal. I'm sorry. Um, let me. He had this to say about Esther five, and I was reading that this week. Uh, I thought it was really good. Here's what he says. He says many people today are asking, "Where is God?" 
Where is God in the middle of a war? Where is God when terrorists fly airplanes into a building? Where is God when tsunamis and hurricanes and earthquakes kill lives, destroy homes, ruin livelihoods? These sound like familiar questions today. Where is God when tragedy strikes? These questions are not new to our generation. People have been asking these questions throughout time, and during the time of Esther, the Israelites were living in a time when the wicked seemed to be prospering and, every, and getting everything they ever wanted. While those who were trying to live in obedience to God had their very lives threatened. So they were asking, where is God now? Why doesn't he intervene? Why doesn't he act? Remember also that the name Esther means something hidden. And this is a good description of the book of Esther because there is much that is hidden in this book. But the biggest piece of information, hidden information, is God. He's not mentioned once in this book, but he is certainly behind every sentence. He is the man behind the curtain in The Wizard of Oz. He is a secret agent working undercover. His presence is so huge in this book that, and this is the genius of the story, the only way to include him is to leave him out. In Esther chapter 4, Esther learned that the lives of all the Jews living in Persia were in danger and threatened by Haman the Agite. Her cousin Mordecai told her to go before the king to plead for the lives, their lives. <clears throat> but Esther was scared to do so. Because if she went before the king without being summoned, he might put her to death. So Mordecai relays two things to her. He says, first of all, you're dead anyway. If she doesn't go before the king... Haman will certainly put you to death. So her only chance is to go before the king. And secondly, Mordecai tells her that possibly she was placed in her exact position for such a time as this. And that if she does not stand up for what is right, deliverance will come from somewhere else. That at the end of chapter 4, we see a monumental shift in the story. We talked about it last week, that from this point forward, Esther, like Neo from the Matrix, is beginning to believe. She is beginning to believe that she was indeed made queen for such a time as this. She was, in fact, going to allow the nudges of God to lead her and to guide her. And at the end of chapter 4, Esther courageously becomes the queen that, the deliverer that God is calling her to be. So here are three takeaways from the passage that I just read. Three takeaways from chapter three, or from chapter five. Number one, know whom your courage comes from. Know whom your courage comes from. Listen to verse Verse 1, on the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace just across from the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne facing the entrance. 
When he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her and held out the gold scepter to her. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. So this is what is going on in chapter 5. Esther has finally come into her own. She is letting God guide her and lead her, and she has developed an inner courage that really is unexplainable. And from what we can see, she has spent most of her life reacting to bad hand after bad hand after bad hand. Her parents have died. She is a foreigner living in a foreign land. She is taken in to be part of a beauty pageant and knows that she will never leave the palace from that moment forward. Either she'll be queen or she'll be part of the king's harem. That's her options. And now, now her entire people are months away from being massacred and she doesn't have any real power to stop it. So, the question is, why the courage when courage doesn't seem to be warranted? Well, perhaps Esther remembered the story of Joseph and how God used him to deliver Israel. Maybe she remembered the story of Moses and how God used him to deliver God's people. Maybe she remembered the story of Rahab or Sarah or Ruth. I do believe that somehow she got it. And it changed everything for her. She remembered the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and and remembered how they had said in Daniel 3, 16 through 18. You remember this? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, blazing furnace, oh, 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 Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. She now has the courage that God gives when everything is on the line, when nothing else makes sense, when you should be scared out of your mind. Have you ever known anyone like that? Someone that maybe you think to yourself, how are you not freaking out right now? Don't you understand how serious this thing is? What's wrong with you? And perhaps you walk with that person for a while and you begin to realize, you know what, there's nothing wrong with that person. They are trusting that God is going to work it all out for their good. And then the question becomes, not what's wrong with you, but what's wrong with me? Why don't I have faith like that? Why don't I trust God like that? You know, the title of the sermon is Courage Where There Is None. Esther all of a sudden is blindly following where she believes that God is leading. She is coming into her own. She is beginning to believe that God really is going to use her to save his people. As I was thinking about all this, it brought this scripture to mind. 1 Corinthians 10.13 
The temptations of your life are no different than from what you experience, and God is faithful. God will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. Anybody heard that before? Has anybody quoted that before? Did you quote it in the correct context? Because this is one of those verses that is ripped out of context and is misused over and over and over again. We realize, right, that that's not even the whole verse. Like that part, not even the complete verse. But we just rip it out and just take it. We don't, we, we don't even consider the context of what is going on. Lots of times we'll rip a scripture out of context and, use it and misuse it, but it's, at least it's the whole verse. Like, like here's one that we misuse and misquote and, 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 and misapply all the time. You guys ready for this one? Might, st- might step on, a little to- on some toes. Jeremiah 29.11 For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You know, at least with Jeremiah, we, 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 we read the whole verse. But, but Jeremiah, you know that this was not for you and me, right? And in fact, it, it wasn't for one person at all. Does anybody know the context of what Jeremiah 29, 11 is talking about? The nation of Israel. So, God is saying, you, I have, I have plans for you, not I have plans for you, Sobek, but I have plans for you, nation of Israel. It changes a little bit of how we read that verse, doesn't it? It should. Because all of a sudden, that verse isn't for me, that, that verse is for the kingdom of God. And so therefore, God has a plan for his church. Right? Because the church has been adopted into the family of God, right? The, the, the church has been adopted into the nation of Israel. So therefore, we are now included in Jeremiah 29.11. The church. God has a plan for the church. Plans to prosper us and not to harm us. Plans to give you a hope and a future. But that has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the body of Christ. Does that make sense? So, back to our verse that I originally just said. 1 Corinthians. Here's the rest of the verse. When you are tempted. Remember, yeah, there you go. The temptation in your life and the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. Now let's finish the actual verse. When you are tempted, who? He will show you a way out so that you can endure. Here's the thing, guys, folks, church. There will be things that you cannot stand. There will be things that God, that will happen to you that you will not be able to stand up against. But, 
But we have a God that when we are tempted, He will show us a way out so that we can endure. Does that make sense? It's not on us. And it's not God is not going to let us do something that we can't stand. God, here's the deal. When things happen that we cannot stand up to, when tragedies happen, when life is awful and we are crushed, and we don't know that we can take another step, we don't know that we can t- crawl another inch, what happens? That's when God swoops in, saves the day. It's all about God. It's not about us. Ever. This is what is so very important about this verse. When we don't include that last part of 1 Corinthians 13, who is responsible for overcoming sin and temptation? Not us. It's God. And it's very dangerous if we don't get that right. Because if we try and endure, fight, avoid, If we try to avoid sin and and temptation on our own, does anybody know what's going to happen? You're going to fall on your face. Trust me, I've tried it many, many, many times. Standing up to temptation on my own is a recipe for disaster. But when we actually read the whole verse, who is responsible, whose power and might does it fall on, it's Jesus that gets us out. He is the one that gives us courage. The Spirit helps us to stand up against the devil's schemes. It has nothing, zero, to do with us. And honestly, if it is just left up to me to figure out how to get over something, I have zero confidence, zero courage that I am going to get out alive. No, it is the power of God living inside of me that has taken up residence in me that gets me through. Thank God, because I am an absolute mess on my own. And I think if you're really honest with yourself, you will say the exact same thing. You're a mess on your own, but thank God. Number two, pride comes before the fall. Esther 5.10-12, through 12, Then Haman gathered together his friends and Zeresh his wife and boasted them about his great wealth and his many children, He bragged about the honors the king had given him and how he had been promoted over all the other nobles and officials. And then Haman added, and that's not all. Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to a banquet, and she prepared for us, and she has invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow. In anticipation of how the story will unfold, we must not miss the lessons of this chapter. There is one from Haman, and there is one lesson from Esther. Haman was proud and arrogant, and although we have not yet seen how the story will turn out, we know from Proverbs 16:18, pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit comes before a fall. We will soon see this in Haman, but not yet. And Jeremy Myers asked, but what about us? Do you look down on others? Those of you that are in a position of authority at work, do you treat those who under you as inferiors, or do you give them the respect that they deserve? Men, do you treat your wives as equal to yourself? You know, you might be the head of the household, but, but does this, this does not mean that you can speak to your wife or treat her in such a way that makes her feel inferior or less honorable or less important 
than you are. Leaders in the church. Servant leaders in the church. Teachers in the church. Do you look with disdain on those who do not do what you do or do not know as much as you do? Do you know when I get in trouble the most? Me, Sobek. Is when I think, I'm pretty good. That's when I get in the most trouble. Eh, I'm doing all right. Eh, I'm doing well. I'm pretty good. Because you know what comes, what's behind that, right? I feel good about myself. I feel good about what I'm doing. I feel good about where I am right now in life or monetarily or whatever. I'm good. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Be careful. Do not fall into the trap of Haman. Do not let your pride take control. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The majority of the times I fail is because I think I'm pretty good. I'm killing it. Or even more, man, I am awesome right now. Whenever I start think, talking and thinking like that, watch out. Back up. Don't stand too close. Because I'm probably going to stumble and fall. And the last thing that you want in this world is for big old me to fall on you. Right? That's not what you want. Number three, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Esther 4, 15-16, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, or night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. You know, Esther faced an impossible task. And she's like many of us. Life is full of difficult decisions. I'm sure that she would have loved to receive a vision from God on what to do, how to do it, laying it all out for her. But that's not what happened. God did not speak to her or send someone to speak to her. She was responsible for making a decision that had some really serious consequences. Can we see that she was much like us today? She couldn't see the happy ending from the frightening middle. Yet she knew this. She knew that there was one that can change it. One that can change her circumstances. One that can change everything. James 5.16. You guys know this one. Confess your faults to one another. Pray for another, for one another, that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I went, I went King James on that one because I like, I like the availeth much. Can I just say, prayer changes everything? It does. Esther knew it. She remembered the prayers of Moses and of Joseph and of King David, of Isaiah, of, of, of Jeremiah, of Ruth. She knew them all. And she remembered them all. She knew, remembered the prayers of Joshua. She knew that it was prayer that was the difference. 
The relationship with God that changed everything. Like Esther, we live in a completely pagan society today. Like the Jews of Persia, we have no earthly king, no earthly prophet, and no earthly kingdom. Like them, like them, we live in an age when we cannot depend on on miracles and visions to guide us. We can't. Does God still work in those ways? Of course He does. However, God gave us a gift that is much greater than that. You realize that, right? God gave us an amazing gift, the greatest gift. He gave us Him. A relationship with Him, with His Son. He has given us a spirit that takes up residence inside of us and is available to us 24 hours a day. Does prayer work? Well, it depends on what you mean by does it work. Is prayer a genie's lamp when we get our, we, we get our wishes answered when we rub it? No, that's not, what, that's not what prayer is. Is prayer communication with the loving Father that knows best and wants what is best for us? Yes. Is prayer communion with the Son of God, Jesus, who gave everything for us so that we can have access to the Father, so that we can have forgiveness, so that we can have eternal life? Yep. Absolutely. Prayer is, a, is prayer a dialogue with the very Spirit of God that comforts us in times of trouble, that encourages us to, good, to do good and to be more like Jesus? Yes. Yes, it is. And does that loving Father sometimes intervene for us, show us mercy, mercy, and change our circumstances? He most certainly does. Trust me, and I know I talk about this a lot, but this is... There were times when we were in the NICU where God intervened. God changed circumstances in Elijah for our benefit. Does God answer prayer? Absolutely. Does God always answer prayer? No. Not the way that we want. He always answers it, but not the way that we want. We prayed and prayed that Elijah would arrive on time. It didn't happen. But God was faithful to us as we walked a hard, hard journey that I wish on no one. God is so good, and he's so available to us. So we can do what Esther had done and has done. We can be faithful to the Word of God. We can live in obedience to Him. We can get instruction from friends and family who are wise and mature in the Christian faith. And most importantly of all, we can pray. We can pray long and we can pray hard. And then, and only then, we can make a decision to go with it. Trusting that God will work out all of the details like only he can.